0: Hello, and welcome back to the Dreamy Mind. This is the podcast that helps you fall asleep by guiding you through meditations, sleep stories, and playing beautiful nature sounds. Tonight we're going to continue with the bedtime story. And of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. We'll be continuing from chapter two where we left off. Before we begin let's take a few deep breaths together to center ourselves and to relax. Inhale lift your shoulders up towards your ears as if you're shrugging and then exhale and let your shoulders slide down your back Make your exhale long let's do it again inhale your shoulders up towards your ears and Exhale feel your shoulder blades sliding down your back away from your ears as low as they can go One more, inhale, shrug your shoulders up, and exhale, push your shoulders down away from your ears, leave them there. Relax your neck, move your head from side to side, giving your neck a gentle massage. Relax your jaw, let it hang loose. Relax every muscle in your face, especially your forehead and your eyebrows. Let them fall down to either side of your face. Let's begin. Chapter 2, Matthew Cuthbert is Surprised. Matthew Cuthbert and the Sorrel Mare jogged comfortably over the eight miles to Bright River. It was a pretty road, running along between snug farmsteads with now and again a bit of balsamy fir wood to drive through or a hollow where wild plums hung out their filmy bloom. The air was sweet with the breath of many apple orchards, and the meadows sloped away in the distance to horizon mists of pearl and purple, while the little birds sang as if it were the one day of summer in all the year. Matthew enjoyed the drive after his own fashion except during the moments when he met women and had to nod at them. For in Prince Edward Island, you are supposed to nod to all and sundry you meet on the road, whether you know them or not. Matthew dreaded all women except Marilla and Mrs. Rachel. He had an uncomfortable feeling that the mysterious creatures were secretly laughing at him he may have been quite right in thinking so, for he was an odd-looking personage with an ungrainly figure and long iron-gray hair that touched his stooping shoulders and a full, soft brown beard, which he had worn ever since he was 20. In fact, he had looked at 20 very much as he looked at 60, lacking a little of the grayness When he reached Bright River, there was no sign of any train. He thought he was too early, so he tied his horse in the yard of the small Bright River Hotel and went over to the station house. The long platform was almost deserted. The only living creature in sight being a girl who was sitting on a pile of shingles at the extreme end. Matthew, barely noting that it was a girl, sidled past her as quickly as possible without looking at her. Had he looked, he could hardly have failed to notice the tense rigidity and expectation of her attitude and expression. She was sitting there waiting for something or somebody and, since sitting and waiting was the only thing to do just then, he sat and waited with her, with all her might and main. Matthew encountered the station master locking up the ticket office preparatory to going home for supper and asked him if the 530 train would soon be along. The 530 train has been in and gone half an hour ago, answered that brisk official. But there was a passenger dropped off for you, a little girl. She's sitting out there on the shingles. I asked her to go into the ladies' waiting room, but she informed me gravely that she preferred to stay outside. There was more scope for imagination, she said. She's a case, I would say. I'm not expecting a girl, said Matthew blankly. It's a boy I've come for. He should be here. Mrs. Alexander Spencer was to bring him over from Nova Scotia for me. The station master whistled. Guess there's some mistake, he said. Mrs. Spencer came off the train with that girl and gave her into my charge. Said you and your sister were adopting her from an orphan asylum and that you would be along for her presently. That's all I know about it, and I haven't got any more orphans concealed hereabouts. I don't understand, said Matthew helplessly wishing that Marilla was at hand to cope with the situation. Well, you'd better question the girl, said the station master carelessly. I dare say she'll be able to explain. She's got a tongue of her own, that's certain. Maybe they were out of boys of the brand you wanted. He walked jauntily away, being hungry, and the unfortunate Matthew was left to do that which was harder for him than bearding a lion in its den, walk up to a girl, a strange girl, an orphan girl, and demand of her why she wasn't a boy. Matthew groaned in spirit as he turned about and shuffled gently down the platform towards her. She had been watching him ever since he had passed her, and she had her eyes on him now. Matthew was not looking at her and would not have seen what she was really like if he had been, but an ordinary observer would have seen this. A child of about 11, garbled in a very short, very tight, very ugly dress of yellowish-gray wincey. She wore a faded brown sailor hat, and beneath the hat, extending down her back, were two braids of very thick, decidedly red hair. Her face was small, white, and thin, also much freckled. Her mouth was large, and so were her eyes, which looked green in some lights and moods of grey in others. So far, the ordinary observer. An extraordinary observer might have seen that the chin was very pointed and pronounced, and that the big eyes were full of spirit and vivacity, that the mouth was sweet-lipped and expressive, and the forehead was broad and full. In short, our discerning extraordinary observer might have concluded that no commonplace soul inhabited the body of this stray woman child of whom shy Matthew Cuthbert was so ludicrously afraid. Matthew, however, was spared the ordeal of speaking first, for as soon as she concealed that he was coming for her, she stood up, grasping with one thin brown hand the handle of a shabby old-fashioned carpet bag. The other she held out to him. I suppose you are Mr. Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables, she said in a peculiar, clear, sweet voice. I'm very glad to see you. I was beginning to be afraid you weren't coming for me, and I was imagining all the things that might have happened to prevent you. I had made up my mind that if you didn't come for me tonight, I'd go down the track to that big wild cherry tree at the bend and climb up into it and stay all night. I wouldn't be a bit afraid, and it would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree all white with bloom in the moonshine, don't you think? You could imagine you were dwelling in marble halls, couldn't you? And I was quite sure you would come for me in the morning if you didn't tonight. Matthew had taken that scrawny little hand awkwardly in his Then and there he decided what to do. He could not tell this child with the glowing eyes that there had been a mistake. He would take her home and let Marilla do that. She couldn't be left at Bright River anyhow, no matter what mistake had been made. So all questions and explanations might well be deferred until he was safely back at Green Gables. I'm sorry I was late, he said shyly. Come along. The horse is over in the yard. Give me your bag. Oh, I can carry it, the child responded cheerfully. It isn't heavy. I've got all my worldly goods in it, but it isn't heavy. And if it isn't carried in just a certain way, the handle pulls out, so I'd better keep it because I know the exact knack of it. It's an extremely old carpet bag. Oh, I'm very glad you've come even if it would have been nice to sleep in a wild cherry tree. We've got to drive a long piece, haven't we? Mrs. Spencer said it was eight miles. I'm glad because I love driving. Oh, it seems so wonderful that I'm going to live with you and belong to you. I've never belonged to anybody, not really. And the asylum was the worst. I've only been in it for four months, but that was enough. I don't suppose you were ever an orphan in an asylum, so you can't possibly understand what it's like. It's worse than anything you can imagine. Mrs. Spencer said it was wicked of me to talk like that, but I didn't mean to be wicked. It's so easy to be wicked without knowing it, isn't it? They were good, you know, the asylum people but there is so little scope of imagination in an asylum, only just in the other orphans. It was pretty interesting to imagine things about them, to imagine that perhaps the girl who sat next to you was really the daughter of the belted girl who had been stolen away from her parents in her infancy by a cruel nurse who died before she could confess. I used to lie awake at night and imagine things like that because I didn't have time in the day. I guess that's why I'm so thin. I am dreadful thin, ain't I? There isn't a pick on my bones. I do love to imagine I'm nice and plump with dimples in my elbows. With this, Matthew's companion stopped talking, partly because she was out of breath and partly because they had reached the buggy. Not another word did she say until they had left the village and were driving down a steep little hill, the road part of which had been cut so deeply into the soft soil that the banks fringed with blooming wild cherry trees and slim white birches several feet above their heads. The child put out her hand and broke off a branch of wild plum that brushed against the side of the buggy. Isn't that beautiful? What did that tree leaning out from the bank all white and lacy make you think of? She asked. Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Why, a bride, of course. A bride in all white with a lovely misty veil. I've never seen one, but I can imagine what she would look like. I don't ever expect to be a bride myself. I'm so homely nobody will ever want to marry me, unless I might be a foreign missionary. I suppose a foreign missionary might be very particular, but I do hope that someday I shall have a white dress. That is my highest ideal of earthly bliss. I just love pretty clothes, and I've never really had a pretty dress in my life that I can remember, but of course, it's all the more to look forward to, isn't it? And then I can imagine that I'm dressed gorgeously. This morning, when I left the asylum, I felt so ashamed because I had to wear this horrid old wincey dress. All the orphans had to wear them, you know. A merchant in Hopton last winter donated 300 yards of wincey to the asylum. Some people said it was because he couldn't sell it, but I'd rather believe that it was out of the kindness of his heart, wouldn't you? When we got on the train, I felt as if everybody must be looking at me and pitying me. But I just went to work and imagined that I had on the most beautiful pale blue silk dress. Because when you are imagining, you might as well imagine something worthwhile. And a big hat, all flowers and nodding plums, and a gold watch, and kid gloves and boots. I felt cheered up right away, and I enjoyed my trip to the island with all my might. I wasn't a bit sick coming over in the boat. Neither was Mrs. Spencer, although she generally is. She said she hadn't time to get sick, watching to see that I didn't fall overboard. She said she never saw the beat of me for prowling about, but if I kept her from being seasick, it's a mercy I did prowl, isn't it? and I wanted to see everything that was to be seen on the boat because I didn't know whether I'd ever have another opportunity. Oh, there are a lot more cherry trees all in bloom. The island is the bloomiest place. I just love it already and I'm so glad I'm going to live here. I've always heard that Prince Edward Island was the prettiest place in the world. And i used to imagine i was living here but i never really expected i would it's delightful when your imaginations come true isn't it but those red roads are so funny when we got into the train at charlottetown and the red roads began to flash past i asked mrs spencer what made them red and she said she didn't know and for pity's sake not to ask her any more questions she said I must have asked her a thousand already. I suppose I had to. But how are you going to find out about things if you don't ask questions? And what does make the roads red? Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Well, that is one of those things to find out sometime. Isn't it splendid to think of all the things there are to find out about? It just makes me feel glad to be alive such an interesting world it wouldn't be half so interesting if we know all about everything wouldn't it there would be no scope of imagination then would there but am i talking too much people are always telling me i do wouldn't you rather i didn't talk if you say so i'll stop i can stop and i make up my mind to do it although it's difficult Matthew, much to his own surprise, was enjoying himself. Like most quiet folks, he liked talkative people when they were willing to do the talking themselves and did not expect him to keep up his end of it. But he had never expected to enjoy the society of a little girl. Women were bad enough in all conscience, but little girls were worse. He detested the way they had of sidling past him timidly, with sideways glances as if they expected him to gobble them up at a mouthful if they ventured to say a word. That was the Avonlea type of well-bred little girl. But this freckled witch was very different, and although he found it rather difficult for his slower intelligence to keep up with her brisk mental processes, he thought that he kind of liked her chatter. So he said, as shyly as usual, Oh, you can talk as much as you like. I don't mind.